to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Welcome, everyone, to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Neil Wilson. I'm one of the founders and the development director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. And that means we are celebrating our 25th season of hosting some of the best writers and thinkers from around the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff Dembicki, author of the Petroleum Papers, inside the far-right conspiracy to cover up climate change. Jeff won the 2018 Green Prize for Sustainable Literature for his book, Are We Screwed? He is an investigative climate change reporter from Alberta, home of one of the largest oil sands deposits in the world. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Great. You know, when I, when I first picked up the book and, and, and looked at the title, I immediately recalled the Pentagon Papers, you know, which if, for those of us who are interested in, in history and politics, is the history of the US political involvement in Vietnam from 45 to 67. And um, it was leaked by a former military analyst, Daniel Ellsberg, and it made the front page of the New York Times on June the 14th, 1971. However, when I finished the book, I realized that as important as the Pentagon Papers were uh, for freedom of speech in the US and for exposing the lies and deceit of the Johnson presidency with regards to the escalation of the war, the Petroleum Papers will have a bigger impact on public opinion and public policy. The war in Vietnam was an atrocity that wreaked havoc and cost lives. The cover-up of big oil is an atrocity that threatens the lives of billions and indeed the fate of our planet. Were you thinking at all or about the Pentagon Papers and using, you know, making a link in some way? I wasn't thinking specifically about the Pentagon Papers and that's really interesting actually that you drew that comparison. Um, I think I, I was thinking just in terms of a large collection of documents from some sort of powerful industry that were not intended to be seen by the public, but which um, when the public sees them really has a gigantic impact on some consequential issues. So I think the comparison you're drawing with the Pentagon Papers is, is very apt. Yes, well, you know, I was a, a recent journalism graduate uh, in 71, and people here in Ottawa uh, and around the world were absolutely stunned uh, at the level of uh, deceit and lies. And I think here we are uh, in 2022, and I, I'm hoping 
And many of us are hoping that this book gets the traction that um, will increase the public and uh, government and corporate um, awareness to, you know, <laughs> start doing things right before it's too late. Um, so, um, uh, Jeff, I, I think I, I'd like to start um, or begin at the end of the book, and I'm hoping that you might read um, a couple of pages from the epilogue just to set some of the tone uh, of the text. Absolutely. What if the conspirators within the oil sands industry had not been so successful in blocking action to stop the climate emergency? What if at various points over the past six decades, leading oil companies had reckoned with their roles in bringing about the destabilization of our atmosphere and had shared their science and powerful voices with those trying to head it off? What if they had used their political influence to push governments in the United States and Canada to synchronize each country's carbon reducing efforts, rather than encouraging politicians to undercut each other at every possible moment. Such thoughts filled my mind as I approached the end of researching and writing this book. And so in late 2021, I got in touch with Joanna Sustento over Zoom, wanting to ask a delicate question. It had been nearly four years since we'd first met in Tacloban City. That initial conversation had taken place in a coffee shop that was underwater during Typhoon Haiyan. I'd been nervous to ask Sustento how she rebuilt her life after having everything she considered most important destroyed by climate change. Over large mugs of coffee, she answered my questions about the worst moments of her life with short, devastating anecdotes a low-key fury, and the occasional flash of wry humor. Now, through our computer screens, I picked up the conversation. If oil and gas producers hadn't spent decades spreading doubt and denial about climate change, I asked, is it possible that the storm that killed her family never would have happened? Well, yeah, she replied, I would like to think so. The climate emergency long predicted within the secret research departments of oil companies has finally arrived. In 2021 alone, more than 2.6 million acres of California went up in flames. An unprecedented cold snap in Texas knocked out electricity for millions of people, and the Canadian town of Lytton, BC burned to the ground during a record heat wave only to be bombarded several months later by torrential rains that caused $450 million worth of damage across the region. But the impacts didn't have to be this painful and intense. When Bill McKibben wrote his landmark book about global warming, The End of Nature, published in 1989, he wasn't hopeful that we'd be able to stop climate change completely. However, he told me recently, it did not occur to me that we would perform as badly as we performed. I did not know that governments would essentially do nothing for 30 years. There's a familiar list of reasons that experts cite for why the world allowed greenhouse gas emissions to keep rising so long. Even though scientists like James Hansen were making blatantly clear the planetary chaos those emissions were locking in. 
We in the West are too addicted to our polluting lifestyles. China and India needed fossil fuels to develop. The economic impacts of shifting to greener forms of energy were too damaging. Our self-serving human nature makes the collective global action required of us impossible. Through his decades of writing and activism on climate change, McKibben came to a much simpler explanation. Oil and gas producers lied to protect their profits. They lied about the science being uncertain. They lied about cleaner industries destroying the economy. They lied about climate change being something for which we are all equally responsible. Another path forward was possible. Imagine McKibben said that just hours after Hansen gave his congressional testimony in 1988, waking up the American public to the dangers of global warming, the CEO of Exxon went on CBS Evening News and said, our scientists are telling us pretty much the same thing. We've got a real problem and we've got to get to work. McKibben said, if that happens, then we avoid this 30-year completely pointless debate about whether global warming is real. Oh, wow. Wow. That's such a powerful couple of pages. Um, Jeff, from, from there, uh, let's move uh, to a November day in 1959 and a conference in New York City called Energy and Man. It was organized to celebrate the American Petroleum Institute's 100th birthday. Robert Dunlop and Edward Teller were the first two speakers. Uh, would you mind uh, please sharing with us the importance of who they are and what they said? Yeah, so this event took place at Columbia University in New York City, and it was meant to be this very joyous celebration of the oil and gas industry's 100th birthday. And so Robert Dunlop was there as one of the keynote speakers, and he was the head of Sun Oil, a company that um, would later prove to be very important for Canada. It became the company Suncor, which is now the largest producer in the oil sands and in a major global producer of oil and gas. So Robert Dunlop was there at the Energy and Man conference. And another of the speakers was Edward Teller. And so he was one of the people responsible for creating the atomic bomb. And during his talk, Edward Teller, um, he, He's, he starts telling the crowd that he's learned about a new global threat that could potentially be more dangerous to humankind than nuclear war. And that threat, Teller says, is global warming. And so Teller takes the crowd through what back then was, was fairly avant-garde science, um, explaining how when you burn oil and gas, it releases emissions into the atmosphere, um, this warms the climate, potentially the polar ice caps could melt. And Teller even warns the crowd that the products that their industry produces could someday result in global changes so consequential that New York City, where they were having the industry's 100th birthday, could one day be flooded and underwater. That's incredible. That's 60, almost 65 years ago that he was saying this. 
you know, making, you know, giving some kind of warning shot, if you will. So four years later, uh, Dunlop uh, visits uh, what would later become one of the uh, biggest oil and gas operations in the world. At, at that time, of course, it was a remote patch of uh, boreal forest in northeastern Alberta. What was he up to? And how does evangelical Christianity figure in the development of the tar sands? And I'm thinking, of course, of Dunlop's predecessor at Sun Oil, uh, J. Howard Pugh and Ernest Manning. And uh, this is, of course, from your chapter, A Gift from God. So it had been about four years after um, Dunlop sat on the stage next to Teller and heard this warning about climate change. And I just, I, I would have loved to have known how he reacted to that. Um, <laughs> and, or, or, the, or the rest of the room, that it, it must've been pretty strange to hear something like that. But we, we can ascertain from Robert Dunlop's actions that it, it didn't change his, his outlook on the importance of his industry because just a few years later, he was up in, in Northern Alberta, joining a team that was trying to develop a project that could commercially develop the tar sands. And pe people had known for a long time that there was just absolutely like massive deposits of oil there, potentially rivaling Saudi Arabia. But it was, it was very difficult to extract this oil because it had properties that were different from conventional oil. And, and so Sun Oil was, was trying to be the, the first major company to, to start to pull this oil out of the ground and, and sell it into the United States. And it was running into some political problems because the, the premier of Alberta, Ernest Manning, was, was, a bit, was a bit worried about the optics of this U.S. company coming in, um, basically siphoning off wealth from Alberta. And so uh, Manning proposed all of these, um, all of these restrictions and, and caveats on the, on the project. And, and Sun Oil was, was very unhappy about that. Howard Pugh um, was especially unhappy about that because he was, he was a fervent libertarian. He was, he was totally anti-communist. He, he hated um, Roosevelt's New Deal. He said this was just like marching the U.S. towards collectivism. Pew was also um, deeply religious. And so he saw the development of the tar sands as a way to create this huge resource that could help inoculate the U.S. against the godless communism of the Soviet Union. And it also so happened that the Manning himself was deeply religious. And so it, it's, it's, super, it's super interesting reading back through the history of that period because Pew and Manning actually bonded quite a bit over their religious beliefs. And, and that, that was seen as, as one factor in the Alberta government finally kind of backing off a bit and allowing this US company to develop the first tar sands operation. Incredible story. And then, of course, uh, moving ahead, uh, in June 1988, um, 
James Hansen, who was the NASA's climate scientist, he appeared before a Senate hearing on climate change. And he, of course, he had been doing research in this field since the 70s. And his testimony was one of the first by a climate scientist. And he said with 99% confidence, based on his extensive research and others' research, that humankind was already, not will, but was already altering the atmosphere through its rising emissions of greenhouse gases. And yet it seems that, that big oil was almost anticipating his remarks and was able to shoot back with their own first-rate research on the causes and consequences of, of global warming. You write, in fact, in 1991, Imperial Oil figured out a way to stop climate change, shut down coal plants, reduce consumption of oil and gas, and shift the entire economy away from polluting industries. So how, why, and how were these oil companies doing real serious research on the effects of climate change and were to some extent perhaps ahead of the curve? Oh, these all of all of these oil gas and gas companies were were way ahead of the public in terms of researching climate change, knowing the science, knowing what caused it. And there's there's a pretty simple reason for that, which is that um, the oil and gas industry was was extremely vulnerable to regulations that would get climate change under control, and so. You know, at least since the 1940s, oil and gas companies had had always wanted to take a very proactive approach to understanding emerging environmental issues, and and so part of what the the petroleum papers refers to is this huge collection of documents produced by Imperial Oil, which is the other major early tar sands producer and Imperial is owned by Exxon. And so there were all of these documents produced over decades by the company that I read through. And in those documents, you can kind of see the development of the company's understanding of climate change. And so um, starting in, in the, the late 70s, moving into the 80s, 90s, Imperial Oil and, and Exxon were becoming some of the world's leading experts on climate change. They were spending a lot of money to research it, and a lot of that research was happening in Canada. And so this scientific research was coupled with a public relations plan. Um, and, and people within the company, they were learning about these potentially catastrophic impacts of their business model, but they were also anticipating what the public's reaction would be once the public learned about the true nature of this crisis. So starting in the, the early 90s, Imperial Oil, not only did it know completely what climate change was about, it decided to start studying solutions to it. So it could be really ahead of the curve. And, and so Imperial Oil figured that if the Canadian government put a national price on carbon emissions, this could potentially stabilize 
the climate emergency, emissions would, would plateau and then begin to fall. Um, there would be pretty minimal impact on the economy overall. In fact, Imperial predicted there could be a lot of jobs and stimulus spending. The problem is this would really hammer Imperial Oil's tar sands profits. And so the company came up with a strategy to make any solution to climate change look economically reckless. And then in the years to follow, its CEO began disputing whether climate change was even real. You know, uh, Jeff, this, uh, this, this book and, and this particular company, um, Imperial, um, a Canadian branch plant of, of Exxon, you know, what you're saying in, in, in this book and what it means that these companies had the facts, had the solutions, could have, you know, worked with government to uh, do the right thing and still make a profit and still have jobs for, for their people. And yet they consciously and systematically lied. Now, it seems to me, I'm no lawyer, but it seems to me that this would be a very, if not easy, a straightforward case that you could take these people to court, just like the big tobacco eventually was, was brought to court and they were brought to their knees. I mean, they're still selling cigarettes, um, but they were exposed. People became more aware of the dangers of, of smoking and secondhand smoke. So how does it look from where you sit and from your research and, and all the people you're talking about who are right in the game, how does it look uh, in the near future? Because we, you know, apparently the clock is, you know, at two minutes before midnight, if you will. How does it look uh, in terms of a possible lawsuit that could, you know, punish and hold these oil companies, you know, hold them, hold their feet to the fire and hold them accountable? So one, one of the people I, I asked about that was this famous class action lawyer named Steve Berman. He's based in Seattle and he's well known because he was part of the legal team that, that led the lawsuits against big tobacco. And those, those lawsuits um, resulted in one of the biggest corporate settlements in history. And, and that, that legal effort was successful because it showed that the tobacco companies had deliberately lied about whether their products cause cancer. And so it's, it's very interesting. Um, after, after that lawsuit, Steve Berman is, is kind of looking around for his, his next big, you know, career making legal effort. And starting in the late 2000s, he decides that um, going after big oil is potentially it. And, and he, he identified through a lot of the same documents that I looked at, that there were very clear instances where oil and gas companies misled the public 
on climate change in order to protect their profits. And so Berman helped um, the cities of San Francisco and Oakland launch lawsuits against big oil in 2017. Those efforts multiplied and now there are more than 20 cities and other jurisdictions in the US that um, are, are moving forward with lawsuits accusing big oil of lying to the public. Canada's been a bit slower on that um, for, for a whole variety of reasons, but Vancouver City Council recently voted to set aside some funding if the city decides to, to file its own litigation. And so Vancouver would be the first major Canadian city to, to do something like that. And, and so this, this area of litigation, it's, it's very interesting to follow. There's a lot of momentum behind it, but it's, if, if, we, if we wanna make the analog to big tobacco, it's, it's still you know, fairly early days. It took decades um, for a successful lawsuit against the cigarette companies. Well, we certainly, uh, you know, if if we if we believe the science, we certainly don't have decades to start, um, you know, doing what we know we should be doing in terms of uh, of uh, you know keeping our planet and keeping uh, people safe um, and healthy. Um, Jeff, you're right that uh, just bringing this right back to Canada. Stéphane Dion, you know, based his 2008, 2008 election campaign on what you call one of the strongest climate plans proposed to date anywhere in the world. You say that Dion's green shift was not so different from the carbon pricing that Imperial Oil had, had, had modeled uh, 17 years earlier. But, <clears throat> and I remember watching this interview and millions of us watched it because we were so hopeful in, in, at that time that, that Dion, because of his environmental smarts, you know, would win the election. And we, we watched him and cringed at his, the bumbling interview with this anchor. Um, you know, he, he didn't under, his English was so poor that he, he didn't understand the question of whether or not the CTV anchor consciously, uh, you know, made it complicated. But that seemed to put an end <clears throat> to his election hopes and certainly put a, a nail in the coffin, if you will, to any hope that this green shift or anything like it would be implemented in Canada because here comes Prime Minister Harper. Can you pick up that thread and, and go with that for a bit? Yeah, so um, it's it's kind of one of the big ironies of of climate change in Canada from that period, which is that um, Dion, after that that interview, was kind of portrayed as this like stumbling dimwit. <laughs> he he just he just didn't have the ability to to lead with with the the determination and courage that Canada needed at that time. Um, in the midst of the financial crisis. In reality, Dion was doing something that I thought was, was very brave, which was proposing this very um, comprehensive climate change plan 
um, that, that would have directly impacted Canada's oil and gas industry. Um, and, and few, very few politicians had the political appetite at the time for that. And so what, what Dion was proposing then would, would have made a pretty, a pretty huge difference. And we, we, we have some version of it now under Trudeau, it came almost a decade later. So it, it looks less transformational now because of the time that has passed. And, and we now have a need for much more radical solutions. But what, what I thought was, was so interesting about what Dion was proposing was that it was precisely the climate solution that Imperial Oil had studied internally in, in the early 1990s. And, <laughs> and so, and Dion's, Dion's opponent in that election, of course, was, was Stephen Harper, um, who, who had worked at Imperial Oil earlier in his career. And, and then, you know, as, as prime minister, Stephen Harper adopted similar tactics around climate change to, to what Imperial Oil had used. So for example, um, the Canadian government was producing world-class climate change science, just like scientists at Imperial Oil had produced decades earlier. And, and Harper's response to that science was to um, was to bury it to to make it difficult for the public to find out about it, and then to place prominent climate change deniers um, in key positions throughout the federal government, who who produced public messages saying, you know, this crisis isn't such a big deal. It may not be real. It will destroy the economy. Imperial Oil and Exxon had essentially done the same thing throughout the 90s and 2000s. And so in many ways, um, Prime Minister Harper was, was mimicking these tactics and, and Dion was just an, an early casualty of that strategy, I believe. What role has the Fraser Institute, Jeff, uh, played in the conspiracy to cover up climate change? So think tanks play a pretty central role in spreading the idea to the public that climate change isn't real, or if it is real, it's it's something we can't afford to take action on because it will destroy the economy. And, and so the, the Fraser Institute is, is among many think tanks in Canada, the US, and the UK um, that was that was really just pushing this idea that, that the science around climate change wasn't settled um, and, and that government regulations would, would be totally ineffective and damaging. Um, I, I do think it's, it's important to point out that the, the Fraser Institute has, has received funding from, from Exxon and also Coke Industries. And that's something you see with, with many similar think tanks in the in the United States, including the groups like the Manhattan Institute, um, which is based in New York City and is sort of a sister organization to the Fraser Institute. But I, I think it's I think the the climate denial that's coming from these groups is is not just um, you know a direct result of 
of oil and gas funding and, and this sort of mercenary thing. I, I think groups like Fraser for, for decades, um, they've been trying to, to, to build the case for this worldview of, of radically limited government, a, a totally scaled back public sector privatizing all of our resources, giving, giving the most possible freedom to, to corporations. Um, and it's, it's not hard to see why they would be opposed to any action on climate change. And so I think the, the fairly extreme right-wing views of Fraser Institute line up quite well with the desire of um, companies like Imperial Oil to dispute climate change because it all comes down to the same thing, really, which is this, this anti-government worldview that the distrusts any sort of regulations. And if, if you want to take it one step further, go back to the founding of the Tar Sands with Howard Pugh. That's, that's exactly the, the worldview that he had, just this profound distrust um, in government to do anything positive. Well, I, I know, you know, you, you're not a, a, a fortune teller or a soothsayer, <laughs> Jeff, you're a, a fantastic reporter and uh, investigator. From where I sit, and I, I would like your comments, if, if you would, it, it seems that the world is moving to the right. If you, if you look at Canada, and if you look at the United States and Britain and Germany and France and Italy, Russia, it, the whole world seems to be of the view that the market should decide how we live and how we spend our money and that the leadership should be coming from Wall Street. Do you see any hope that somehow some way we're going to wake up because it seems to me that we are, we are sleepwalking. And, and I know that the major responsibility here is, is on government, the lack of real leadership to take on, you know, big oil and uh, the corporate ideas of, of big government and big oil. And as well as, of course, you know, it seems profit before people is the, the mantra of Wall Street. So how in the name of goodness are, are, do you see us you know, waking up and, and getting on with you know, doing the right thing? Well, yeah, I, I don't wanna like totally depress all the people <laughs> listening to this. Um, and, and you know, like I, I could have I could have written a book about all of all of the the amazing rapid positive transformational change that's happening on climate change and indeed people are writing those those types of books. Um, there, I I think I think now you know the the market is becoming increasingly divided in the way that it sees climate. There's like forward-looking companies and executives that are becoming extremely rich by trying to anticipate how to solve climate change and, and figure out what sort of what sort of industries 
will need. And, and there's just been an absolutely like massive rollout of clean energy around the planet that, that is just growing exponentially. So you have that side of the market and then you have the, the reactionary side, which includes like coal burning utilities, oil and gas companies, um, some of the large meat producers, and, and they're sort of fighting this like rear guard effort to preserve their business model, even in the face of these mounting climate disasters and financial risks. It's a very short term strategy, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, the thinking of these com- a lot of these companies is, is very short term. It's just driven by, you know, quarterly earnings. And so in that sense, it's not totally surprising. But I, I do think that, you know, politically, we, we are seeing sort of huge progressive shifts in thinking that the might, that might not be so obvious, um, or maybe, maybe we'll only really recognize them in hindsight. But um, the Biden administration just passed this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which represents um, the largest federal action in the U.S. to combat climate change ever, like tens and tens and hundreds of billions of dollars on climate change solutions. And it's, it's, not, it's not the ideal policy. A lot of people have, have critiqued it from all sides of the political spectrum. But the, that, that type of government action wasn't even thinkable under Obama during the the financial recession, and it's 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 due in huge part to 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 massive grassroots organizing um, mm-hmm. in many different areas across the United States, and so we we haven't seen something quite on that level in in Canada. But I I think you know the fact that the U.S. government is taking this type of action, the fact that the European Union is moving forward on on kind of a massive green stimulus. It's 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 referring to as kind of a green deal. Um, this this is all pretty pretty positive stuff, and it comes at the same time as as some of the scarier democratic backsliding <laughs> that you were describing. Yeah. So it's, it's very hard to parse out, like, mm-hmm. what, what is the driving narrative here? Yeah. Well, you know, thank you very much. Certainly the book is, is not at all depressing. It's very encouraging. And I, I'd like to end, in fact, uh, this conversation uh, with the words uh, of Bill McKibben, who uh, says, Dembicki has done the world a tremendous favor. Hopefully we'll act on it. If not, it will be a great resource for any future historians wondering why and how we let the petroleum industrial complex do such damage. So on that note, all the best on uh, your media campaign. And uh, let's hope this uh, gets into the hands of not only the general public, but into uh, you know decision makers and lawmakers. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. Take good care. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Jeff Dembicki about his book, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. Available from Perfect Books on Elgin Street and from independent booksellers from coast to coast to coast. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada 
Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.